Hello, this is Carsten Klein from Friedrich Nauern Foundation. And this is Connecting the Dots, a podcast series that tries to bring together voices from Europe and South Asia to have a good conversation on the core values of liberalism and, of course, liberal way of life. We hope to capture the differing views, opinions and understandings of all of you. Thank you and have fun. This is Connecting the Dots, a podcast series by the Friedrich Naumann Foundation. I'm Chavi Sachdev, the host of the podcast. This episode is about rivers and their importance as engines of economic growth and regional cooperation. Rivers such as the Danube, the Rhine and Spree, among others, connect various European cultures with one another. Through them, goods are transported from one nation to another and finally to the ports and docks on the coastline. Can South Asia develop such a model? Can we use the complex network of rivers in the region to build a new trading system? One that's easier on the environment and perhaps brings us closer? Joining us are Dr. Medha Bisht, Dr. Hassan Abbas and Mr. Sunil Kapoor. I'm Medha Visht. I teach at the Department of International Relations at South Asian University. So there are two faculties there, the Department of Sociology and Department of International Relations. I'm with the International Relations, okay. that's right. I'm Dr. Hassan Abbas. Uh, I'm a civil engineer and uh, my specialization then hydrogeology followed by water resources. My name is Sunil Kapoor. I'm a director working with FML Ship Management in Cyprus. I've been in this shipping industry for the last 40 years. I, I uh, used to sail on the ships and after completing my time as chief engineer, I worked in Hong Kong for 11 years and in 2007, I came to Cyprus to start this company. And we are basically doing the management of the ships. So you've, you've been a marine engineer and you've worked uh, with state-owned shipping companies, and now you're managing cargo, is that right? Uh, yeah, you are uh, perfectly right. I used to sail uh, in, a, in a company called Sh Shipping Corporation of India. I joined as a fifth engineer and rose till a second engineer before changing my uh, job to another foreign-based company. Mm -hmm. And we are basically uh, doing the management of cargo vessels, mostly um, bulk carriers, tankers, gas carriers. So basically um, more on the cargo side. How large are these carriers? Oh, they are from as small as uh, 5,000 deadweight to 215,000 deadweight uh, cape size. So they are in various shapes and sizes and they go all around the world carrying uh, the cargoes everywhere. So specifically in Europe, is it mostly sea or inland waterways that you are traversing? So my specialization, if you see, is what they call blue water. So it's in the seas. But uh, as such, we are also connected with the, with the river transport also in a different way because uh, there are places like Mississippi River, you know, where our ships are plying. And we have these barges, uh, which are connected and bringing in grain from inland. And these barges, they bring the grain to the uh, to New Orleans, where our ships are um, anchored. And from these barges, they are actually transported and onto the ships. And same thing in Amazon River or various other places in Europe also. We, we have smaller ships, especially reefer ships, they used to go right into the towns, you know. So uh, they used to be, uh, looks so beautiful. And then you see that your ship is just uh, anchored near the city. And then, uh, you know, you can see the movement of people and how things are moving. Yeah. And what are the kind of goods that typically go on these riverine ships, which are obviously smaller than the ones that go out in the blue seas? Yeah, so most of the uh, cargoes which is being moved in these uh, rivers is... Uh, uh, is the grain, 
then the coal, fertilizer, then you have these uh, refrigerated goods. So there are a lot of things which are moving in and around. So coming back, because I know that Europe realized uh, that it is very important to maintain their uh, uh, rivers, you know, and they used it quite a lot right from the day one. Uh, I think the Romans uh, took a lot of initiative uh, when they developed these uh, river and, and small, and during the industrial revolution also, uh, uh, there was a lot of uh, development and focus on keeping the, the navigation good in these rivers. And that's how, even till today, you find not the big ones, the smaller ships, they move in and around with very ease. So uh, uh, people are quite comfortable seeing ships moving around. Infrastructure is very good. The movements are good. And they are able to load and unload without any problem. So these sound like, obviously, people have paid attention to make it easier to traverse these inland waterways. So historically, um, how would you characterize the river network and cooperation in the South Asia region, especially the Gangetic, Brahmaputra and Indus uh, areas? So I think historically, we've all always had this practice. I mean, you go back to ancient India, and uh, right from, I guess, uh, the Indus Valley civilization to the Mauryan age, uh, we did use rivers for navigational purposes. I think particularly during the Delhi Sultanate also, rivers were often used uh, for navigation. So I think inland water navigation is not really a new idea to South Asia. It's not getting reintroduced to South Asia. Uh, if you really go back to the pre-modern South Asia, which was a very different South Asia, um, and uh, particularly the kind of cultural exchanges which India has had both to the West and the East. You know, how did it really happen? I think one has to read the oceanic histories. One really has to read, uh, you know, the link between the rivers and these port cities. And these port cities were really the nodal spaces right. for connecting people across. And that is where I guess, you know, India gets its civilizational identity. So uh, when you really look back to the past, particularly I would say the pre-Westphalian period, the pre-modern period, I think there was, there is a lot of evidence all on record that navigation was in fact an accepted practice. I think now we're just trying to pick up those uh, strings and trying to really imagine this cultural or this geocultural, geoecological aspect of South Asia, which is very much a part of South, uh, South Asian civilizational identity. So, Dr. Abbas, um, we're talking today about water and the rivers as arteries of trade. What are the benefits of water transport for trade? Is this a good thing? Should we be doing this? Okay, yes, we must be doing it because uh, you said economical. Yes, it is very economical because uh, when you move on road, the carbon footprint is about... Uh, 50 times less and the cost of transportation is about 15 times less in terms of fuel and maintenance and all fuel of this. and maintenance and everything so it is it is both economical and environment friendly because it reduces your carbon footprint uh, and then it, it reduces a lot of congestion on the roads because the capacity of waterways is much bigger than uh, uh, the roads I feel like we need a rider on that, though. The capacity could be greater if the rivers are maintained, right? Yes. I mean, uh, roads are also to be maintained. Railway tracks are also to be maintained. Nothing, nothing works without maintenance. So uh, that maintenance part is part of the operational expenditure. But then, given the operational expenditure that you have on the roads especially, because the roads, after some time, they need recarpeting, there's rutting problem, there's traffic congestion problem. Those are the kind of problems like uh, uh, a waterway, the surface of a waterway would never wear out uh, compared to a road or a rail track. So it's, it's much uh, less on the, on the maintenance part as well. Yeah, and this is true. We, 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 how, many, how much ever road we build, we're always going to have more cars, more cars. Yes. Never, ever going to have more road than cars. Yes. So hopefully the rivers will, will, will outpace us. We'll never catch up. Yes. We did a study for uh, the feasibility of using uh, Indus River as uh, a transportation corridor, linking 
the ports uh, in the Arabian Sea uh, all the way to the city uh, Jalalabad, which is in Afghanistan. So uh, we did that study and we, we found out that uh, the current infrastructure of roads and motorways combined, the capacity of this river corridor could be 40 times over compared to the current infrastructure. So you mean one day there would be no trucks on those roads and in fact all those things could move by river? Yes. I mean, trucks are not going to go out of business because when you move along the river, every, every major town, every major city becomes a port. And uh, when you offload from the river, uh, you, you need trucks. And, and if there is more, more trade, then the trucks are not going to lose their business. There will be more trucking business as well. So this could benefit them too? Yes. It won't put them out of business. Interesting. So what, do you, what would you enumerate as the geopolitical hurdles that prevent us from realizing a pan-Asian trade network that relies on its rivers? The first thing is uh, really the, the, the colonial borders which we have. And uh, most of uh, these uh, borders, in fact, you know, uh, flow through the border regions. Uh, we have contested borders. Uh, so the post-independent or the post-colonial South Asia was very different. Because I think we're in Europe, and you were talking about that comparison uh, earlier. You know, the idea of the European steel community, for instance, was coming up. Uh, they were uh, planning to pool in their sovereignty. While this wave of decolonization was going on in South Asia, countries were also fiercely safeguarding their sovereignty. Later on, uh, what we really see is uh, the navigability of rivers or the signs of navigability of rivers. You know, you need constant dredging. You know, the European rivers are very, very different than the Himalayan rivers because the Himalayan rivers get a lot of sediment with them. And uh, for making the rivers uh, free or, you know, making room for the rivers, if I would put it like that, you need to dredge, you need to constantly monitor, you need regulatory sort of uh, frameworks, which I guess didn't really get that kind of attention. Even the regional or the pan-Asian sort of an approach which was emerging, it was uh, not really in sync, you know, with the economic vision, which perhaps Europe had at that point in time. So yes, Nehru at that point of time was talking about a pan-Asian vision. You know, we had the Afro-Asian conferences, etc. But uh, that was not an economic vision, I think, which ASEAN had and, and, and the European Union had. Interesting. When you speak about dredging and maintaining these waterways, you know, we've really, I mean, we haven't even developed them for domestic trade so much, right? Could you speak to that? Do we have a lot of trade on up and down rivers in uh, India to the point where like the potential has been the potential has really been dampened. I mean, now there is a fresh spirit to it because, you know, with this this whole wave of connectivity diplomacy and, you know, we're talking about corridors. We're not just talking about transport corridors. We're talking about energy corridors, water corridors. So uh, this is really picking up. But uh, when it really comes to, I would say, uh, uh, you know, really looking at the navigation potential of our rivers, you know, it's, it's, it's difficult. And, and I would say, I mean, the ecological reasons for it, because, I mean, if you look at, uh, you know, the nature and the geography of Himalayan rivers, I mean, it needs proper planning, you know. And uh, so, say, uh, you know, when uh, the subcontinent is divided, say in the Mauryan Empire or the Delhi Sultanate, that was not really an issue, right? But these kind of issues, when new borders were formed, these kind of issues came in because there were new countries which, the, which had their own sovereign, uh, uh, you know, authority over their territorial uh, domain. So I think, um, a more comprehensive, integrative planning could uh, not really take place. Um, the Himalayan rivers, we also know, shift over a period of time. You know, there are two kind of rivers, I would say broadly, that you find in South Asia. One are the meandering rivers and the other are the braided rivers. And over a period of time, if you do not really have a very integrated approach, what happens is that the sediment starts collecting, you know, and obviously that makes the river unnavigable. The navigability of the river itself a question. So I think these are the kind of questions mm -hmm. which the policymakers would now be sort of facing, and that would require a more integrated approach. But it requires a lot of maintenance, it requires a lot of regulation, 
which, well, uh, when you talk about uh, water governance in South Asia or uh, how would that pan out, this is this is going to be an interesting thing to watch. Yeah, if I feel like we haven't had good stewardship in this area for neither maintenance nor ensuring that they're even sustainably uh, even cleaned, let alone you know made navigable for most people. I mean, just look around you, and there's plastic in absolutely everything, absolutely along with absolutely. the silt, <laughs> absolutely and effluents, absolutely. Yeah. Do you think it would help regional governments or international governments collect tolls and freight taxes? When you move on roads, you pay toll taxes. So you know. Uh, toll taxes are not going to go away. And then those toll taxes are used for maintenance uh, and uh, maintenance of ports, maintenance of waterways. So uh, that turns in, actually that, that becomes an economic engine for the jurisdiction, political or administrative jurisdiction, which is uh, actually managing the ports and, and, and the waterways. So they earn money. And uh, the the businesses which are involved in transportation of goods, they make money, and uh, the goods are transported cheaper. So the clients uh, they also save money. So I mean, it's a, it's a win-win for everyone involved in the in the process. So what do you think are the geopolitical hurdles to have having this happen in a, a pan-South Asia? network way that relies on rivers? Okay, uh, I think uh, one of the political hurdles is uh, that we have invested a lot in managing our rivers for irrigation and hydropower. So there are structures which are built for irrigation and hydropower which are not compatible with the uh, navigation. So uh, there needs to be uh, engineering solutions going around those structures, or in some cases, uh, there would be requirement of uh, demolishing those structures. Uh, so th th then the people dependent on those structures uh, and the political entities you know, who had promoted those structures, uh, they don't uh, very much support it. But if it is done smartly and carefully and uh, in, a, in a manner that it is like uh, if, if you have to remove a structure, you do it in phases and before removing the structure, which is basically, for example, diverting water. So you make an alternate structure which diverts water for them, but not through the old technology of barrages, like, for example, uh, pumps, uh, pipes uh, that can replace a barrage. So that replacement is possible, but then it should be done before you actually uh, remove the structure. To minimize disruption and, yes. and damage, of course. Yes. Yeah. Okay, that's, that's a clever way to do it. Um, are there other hurdles that uh, you think get in the way of cooperation or coming up with uh, something that people can see eye to eye on when it comes to these across borders? One of the things that is uh, an impediment, especially if, if I specifically talk about Indus River, is uh, some geopolitical reasons because uh, the access to warm waters for, uh, 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 for the Central Asian states, Russia and Western China, uh, is not very much supported by some political powers in the world. Uh, and, and this is not uh, a current phenomena. Since the times of Napoleon, uh, this was talked about in history that uh, if Napoleon joins hand with Russia and Russia gets access to warm waters through Indus River, what would be the impact of the, what would be its, uh, you know, impact of global power uh, balance between uh, Russia and Great Britain. So those things are written in the history books and uh, to some extent that is still there. Uh, like in 1951, uh, an essay was written by David E. Lilienthal in Collier Magazine of USA in which he said that uh, uh, Kashmir is a gateway for uh, 
Soviet Russia and Red China and Red Tibet to enter into the fertile resources of the subcontinent and all the way to Arabian Sea. So those are the things which have been written in the 50s from the times of Napoleon's and maybe uh, still that kind of uh, Cold War thinking exists. So that is a, an, 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 an impediment in actually uh, implementing this idea. Well, how do we tap into this potential then? How do we overcome these hurdles? What are some things you've seen that could revive a trade that used to flourish when, when we were not separated into these different boundaries? There are ways and means of going around it. One is uh, you don't think of implementing the whole project all at once. You, you phase it. I mean, go back, I would say, to Mahabharat, which is an epic. And I always go back to this example because it has a lesson to offer. Uh, Mahabharat is an epic because it's a, this grand epic. And, uh, you know, so there is this meta story, but that meta story is braided into these multiple micro stories. And that's why it's an epic. So if you want to really think big about South Asia, I think we need to have this meta-narrative, which is there, the grand narrative. But how that grand narrative is really braided into these micro-narratives. So uh, how is it that you actually make the people, the fishermen, or, or, or the people concerned there, the community, local stakeholders? I've been, I've been thinking about it. and. Uh, you know, so for instance, the kind of boats, for, you know, I mean, if you look at Southeast Asia, these days I'm into a comparison of looking at Southeast Asia, South Asia and, and Central Asia and how water policies are really panning out. And uh, so they're using these, the, the, the bamboo boats, you know, which were also used in ancient uh, uh, India and, you know, very, very sustainable uh, because I think, you know, while we've been talking about green energy transition, there is a lot of greenwashing also which is happening and I think we need to take that into consideration. So, um, you know, what are those indigenous approaches? Let's mm -hmm. let's sort of, you know, look at those stories. How is it that we can actually empower those people or those, what are the oral narratives there? And I think, you know, some work there is needed. And perhaps when you actually weave the meta with the micro and, um, you know, these grand plans have some space for uh, the people or the local community, you know, who are really the real stakeholders who are living around the banks of the river, I think then only it can be sustainable. So it's not just about the fisher folk who are fishing in that part of the river, but also if we're moving goods up and down, involving all Absolutely. the, the riverine communities. Absolutely, yeah. And, and using their yes. older wisdom as well. Yes, yes. And do you see that happening anywhere? Um, well, um, I was uh, trying to follow Southeast Asia. And because I think Southeast Asia is a good sort of a departure point, you know. So when you really look at the Mekong, and of course, there have been many, many problems. But I think what they've really done is that, uh, you know, uh, and perhaps that's the reason that when we talk about ASEAN, we talk about the ASEAN way, you know. We talk about the Mekong spirit. Because I think that connect between the past and the present, you know, is there. Mm -hmm. You know, you see that continuity. So they are not these solutions or these norms which are coming from, say, the international discourses. But yes, they are internalized, embraced, and uh, they find their own identity in that specific geocultural space. So it's there, I think, you know, can we think about a South Asian way? What is really the South Asian right. way? So I think, you know, these are the questions which need some reflection. Mm -hmm. If at all, we are really planning about uh, regional integration in South Asia, because someone has said that South Asia is just a collection of reluctant states. So, so are you really looking at piecemeal cooperation? Because I think we're thinking big. So I think we need to put these puzzles in that map and then move forward with that vision. Yeah. Uh, we built a port in Kotri, uh, which is about uh, 170 kilometers from the Arabian Sea uh, along the Indus River. Um, there's already an irrigation barrage. Uh, there are actually two cities, Hyderabad and Kotri. They are side by side on each side of the river. Uh, so if we built a port in Kotri or in Hyderabad or in both cities and connect it with the Arabian Sea, uh, it would, I would say, infuse this uh, idea of river navigation. Uh, the benefits are that currently all the uh, cargo which, which is received at the port of Karachi and which is uh, northbound uh, 
out of the city of Karachi has to pass from Karachi. Hmm. And the infrastructure in, in, in Karachi is so much, uh, I would say, overcrowded oh, that it, yeah. it, it cannot handle that kind of shipping. So when, whenever there are a couple of ships docked at the, at the port, you know, the, the, the trucks which are taking that, it, uh, you know, they're choking the roads, not within the city, but also uh, up on the highways for hundreds of kilometers. Now, if you bypass that 170 kilometers mm -hmm. of road, including the metropolitan areas of Karachi, then all the northbound cargo would have Kotri as a preferred port of call. And we can promote that as green transportation, promote it as uh, the latest uh, transportation, river transportation corridor with the latest things in there. Currently, some of the problems with the river navigation are the use of uh, uh, gasoline-powered uh, ships and boats. Now, those ships and boats have issues like uh, oil spills, lubricant spills, uh, carbon footprint, and everything. Now, if you put the electric barges in the river uh, navigation areas where already this trade is happening, there's a huge infrastructure which is supporting this gasoline power uh, mm. boats. Uh, but here, there is no no infrastructure like that. Like so you can start new. with you can start with electrical barges only, and those barges could be uh, powered by batteries, and those batteries could be recharged by solar and wind. Absolutely. So you can promote it as the green solution and a cheaper solution uh, for transportation. And then you know countries like Pakistan, which have promised the world that they will reduce their carbon footprint and stuff. You can present it like that, and uh, to attract investors, uh, you can actually ask them to invest in building this thing and claim the carbon credits. So instead of claiming those carbon credits in our INDCs, we sell it to them. In any way, the world would be a better place. Yeah, this sounds very clever. Yeah. So all those opportunities yeah, exist. That's right. Yeah. And, and this, is, this is not something that needs to be confined right there. It could be utilized anywhere. Are there solutions you see from Europe that could be incorporated here and maybe made our own? Like right now, we've just seen how when there is conflict, uh, the rivers have been really crucial to getting resources across from one end of a continent to another. I think, you know, where uh, Europe really stands out is really the rule of law hmm. and the regulatory sort of mechanisms. So unless until you have that legal system or structures in place, I don't think so it's going to translate down to the very spirit because, um, so I think that's the implementation challenge, you know, it's not really the vision challenge, but it's really the implementation channel down on the ground. And uh, and uh, that is like really a stark contrast between what you really see in Europe and what you really see in South Asia. So I think if at all we need to go in for a regional mechanism, um, the rule of the law should prevail. And I think that will really balance out also the uh, riparian asymmetries which you really see in the subcontinent. Interesting. So maybe we could learn that from them. Like there, there are mechanisms and the, the processes are followed, Absolutely. whatever they are. Yeah. What are the processes and how are the processes done? So fine, one thing is that, okay, you know, these are the laws and this is what Europe's done. But let's really understand the processes. That itself, I think, would be a good contribution. And people could learn from that. Right. And, uh, and adapt or apply Absolutely. them if, yeah. if necessary. We have a lot to learn from... Uh, uh, from the from navigation in North America, from navigation in the Europe, even in Africa, uh, South America, uh, China, <laughs> you know, everywhere this river navigation is uh, is being done uh, on 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 a, on, a, on a big scale. Now, Congo River uh, in 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 Africa, it has almost no major structures. It's just on the run of the river that more than uh, 50 to 80 percent of their trade is on Congo River. Right. Uh, similarly, Nile is serving 10 countries, uh, Danube and Rhine, mm -hmm. that uh, corridor which cuts through Europe. I mean, if, uh, if, if, you, if you go there, you, you will see barges uh, and, and, and tourists on, on the rivers all along. Absolutely. So, so all those engineering problems, dealing with the slopes, dealing with the storms, dealing with heavy rainfall, dealing with droughts, and, and all, all the technical things, their solutions have been developed by those people. All we have to do is 
take it from them and implement it here. Mm. Maybe a little more greenly. Yes, uh, of course. I mean, like I was mentioning, they have built the barges, which are very green, but they cannot put them there because of the economic reasons. We are free from that. We can start with that. Yeah. It, it's just like leapfrogging. Uh, the, the technology of mobile phones, for example. In Pakistan, it is one of the best in the world. We are at least better than USA. Because uh, when this technology was developed, uh, the first generation of technology was implemented all over USA. Uh, we didn't have money. But when, when we adopted it, the technology was cheaper mm -hmm. and better. Mm -hmm. And now we, we, we have the best mobile phone service in Pakistan. Right, because you built on something that was already good. Yeah, of course. Right. Actually, I was, I was in Holland, and, and, and they have built some very nice electric barges. Yeah. But they are not uh, getting a lot of market in Europe, uh, the, the place which is very sensitive to environment, because... Uh, there's no room for them. There's no, no yeah. room for them just yet. Yeah. But here we can actually create a market for them. Right. A big market. Yeah, because we're starting from scratch. We are starting That's from scratch, right. yes. So these sound like, obviously, people have paid attention to make it easier to traverse these inland waterways. Um, what can we learn in South Asia from the way things are set up in Europe, especially because there are transnational rivers. These are rivers that cut through many countries and yet trade happens to them. So for the supply chain to be uninterrupted in Europe, what are some of the things that South Asia can pay attention to? See, uh, in pan-South Asian uh, network or uh, in and around South Asia, there are several problems. Uh, I think number one is the trust between the various countries, you know. They are not looking at a broader picture. So here in Europe, they have sorted or ironed out their differences. And uh, they realize if they have to grow, then everybody has to be part of it. They need to go together and they need to cooperate. But in, uh, in uh, South Asia, this is not happening. There's a lot of mistrust between the various countries and nothing has, no proper dialogue has taken place between the various uh, countries with respect to the navigation and with respect to these uh, uh, business. So uh, I would say that uh, there are a lot of unresolved territorial disputes such as India, Pakistan, Kashmir, we all know. Then wa water sharing uh, between India and Bangladesh. These disputes should actually uh, impede their efforts and uh, cooperative trade network as countries may hesitate to grant access to their rivers if they perceive it as compromising their territorial claims or water rights. So there are many, many things which are there and uh, people have are not looking at developing at developing the road transport. You know, they, they think if we have better roads and mega roads, then it's easy. But this is the natural way. I, I, I don't understand why ancient people, they realize the meaning of these waterways. And they would say that rivers are always as the highways of civilization. But here, there is something lacking in understanding. So in Europe, you're saying there is consensus, there are regulations, they figure out how to do the trade treaties, tolls, whatever. You, you've experienced this both in Asia, South Asia as well as in Europe. So what can we do here? Are there regulatory bodies that can be set, that can be set up? Do the governments need to talk to each other? What can we do to revive and sort of put fresh breath into trade over rivers in South Asia? Like what, what models are out there or cooperations have you seen? I think the first is uh, to sit together and have a dialogue. That is the first necessity. Create a separate body between the two or three countries and then assess what kind of development could be done which will benefit everybody. You know, and they also need to be made aware that in today's world, by using the river and sea transport, 
it is also you are helping the environment. There's a decarbonization. And now the way I see the world is moving towards uh, zero carbon, they are actually, you can have battery operated uh, barges. You could have solar operated. You could have even hydrogen or ammonia operated. So this, this will not even, uh, you know, uh, will also help towards because by using trucks and cars and other model for transporting, I think the waterways is, or barges are still much better in terms of environment. And then you can develop infrastructure that's needed to have a good transport. And when you're developing uh, infrastructure, you link with the train and roads to these uh, small, small uh, harbors or ports around. And this will develop the cities. It will also be used as a tourism mode. Then there could be many, many things which subsequently will start. And then the trust will start. Then the people will start moving in and out. Then, uh, you know, uh, the, the people will start having different kind of uh, uh, outlook when you meet people. So many things will start happening automatically, which don't require a lot of paperwork. That's true. And I can imagine that it will also boost the economy. More people will be employed in this trade and there will be an exchange of, I mean, it'll just be good for each state that is involved with this economically. Yeah, I fully agree. Uh, and I think this is coming because of the limited uh, awareness and utilization because uh, people have not understood the potential of inland waterways. And in India, the, the best part is the Ganges. I know the government has started a lot of work on uh, on this and present government is also putting in uh, some kind of a system where they could use as a national river, national river number one or whatever. So there is a lot of potential, but many things are on the paper. And I think one of the things which people uh, miss out is the dredging. So the better you dredge the whole river, you can always have a constant supply of water and you can have better barges where you can take more cargo. So those are the things I'm missing out. People say, oh, these rivers cannot be used. The bed is so slow and in the summer months is not working. So there are many, many negatives then positive for using the rivers uh, for, the, uh, for the movement of cargoes. But these are addressable if there's a plan. Yeah. And actually, uh, when I was preparing, then I realized that it's not only, uh, I'm just talking about India as such, uh, not only the uh, Ganges, you have Brahmaputra, she flows from Assam, Arunachal Pradesh and Meghalaya. Then you have Godavari River, it flows between Maharashtra, Telangana, Andhra Pradesh. Then you have Krishna River, Indus River. So there is so much of potential. It's giving, and, and once you are going to develop, I'm sure people will also look at the environmental, the water, water will be kept clean and it will be moving. So there will, will be many, many things because now most of the time people are using uh, the rivers to dump the sewage and also dump the industrial waste. So, you know, you cannot have the two things together. So there will be actually a win-win case once we start looking at our rivers as our lifeline. I guess so. Um, maybe one will follow the other. And in this case, if we put commerce first, then the other things will follow. Um, what about, so you're, you're saying it could be used intranationally as well as internationally. The riverways can connect states within a country as well as different ports outs in different countries. Yeah, so uh, I, I fully agree with you. Uh, both ways. One, you can do uh, the rivers which are flowing between the different uh, countries. That is one. And also uh, nationally, we should develop. Now you see, look, look at the US. I was giving you the example of this Mississippi River. How much of the grain which is flowing in from the various Midwest and all is coming and they all come to New Orleans and there's loaded on the ship. Same thing in, in Europe. They have the tributaries and network of uh, rivers which are being used to bring and move the, uh, the cargoes to various small, small places and also the finished product to the other places and finally internationally. Is there uh, anything else you've seen that inspired you to think that it could be applied here to revive and recharge uh, waterway trades? 
Yes, uh, it is synergistic with environment because uh, currently uh, our development model had been that let there no let there be no water flowing into the sea. It was considered wastage. Now, with the, with the passage of all these years, it has been realized. It has been written. It has been researched that water needs to get to the delta. But then there is an economic engine upstream which is pulling that water out. Now, if there is an other economic engine which is pulling that water in, that would actually benefit the environment. Water would start flowing down to the delta because then it would be the uh, it would be in the interest of those people living in the north, which are now diverting water, to let the river flow, and benefit from the trade. Right, but then what about things like the unpredictabilities that have become sort of predictable? We know that rivers are now going to flood more. We know that the rain is going to not be contained in the catchment area. We know that uh, there is now drought because now the rivers are drying up and, and it's unseasonable dry or wet spells. So how would that be factored in? How would we account for that if we're trying to build these? Actually, this is, first of all, this is a very good thing that we, that we know these things are going to be more uncertain. And when we know that these are going to be more uncertain, we can plan and think accordingly. Uh, like, for example, starting from the drought, uh, there is something called a still canal. A still canal is a canal in which water doesn't flow, hmm. it stays still. And uh, the water level is maintained, and along the slope of the ground, because wherever there is a city, it is above sea level, and the canal is on a slope uh, leading to the, to the sea. So what you do is you provide locking gates yeah. in which the canal stays still in steps, like, like a stair. Uh, and, and then there's a, this uh, mechanism which is called locking gates, which, which control the ships from moving. Like from a valve, here. basically. Yeah. So you, you build that. Now, a still canal doesn't need flowing water. Mm. And only some water is lost at the sea when you are... And, and sometimes even that loss is very little because you always open the gates when the tide is high. And when the tide is low, you keep the gates closed. So very little water is to be going into that canal. And that much water, mm. even in the worst case scenario, Indus has enough water to maintain a still canal. So still canals can work well up to Kotri. Uh, uh, and then uh, uh, the second thing is high floods. Mm. No, in high floods, anyway, we have the water. So, <laughs> but so, yeah. yeah, but to channel it and then to, to deal with it, yeah, uh, th there's another problem of silting. Uh, silting is always a problem, and, and especially uh, this part of the world where we are talking about this is Indus Delta. It has a very flat topography, uh, and, and, and uh, it has the tendency of accumulating a lot of silt. But then again, if you have a still canal and, and you have a couple of dredgers hmm. working in there, it is part of maintenance, but dredgers are working everywhere. Uh, wherever there is river navigation, they are working in... Uh, Rhine and Danube corridor. They are working in Mississippi River. Right. Uh, so, so that technology is there. Those drills are there. We don't have to reinvent anything. Right. We, we can take advantage of the existing technology right. and the best practice. And this would just go into the operational costs. So this is what we have to yeah, do to it, maintain them. It, it, it is part of the operational costs everywhere it, where the navigation is being done. And, and it is factored in when I say it's 15 times cheaper. You know, it's, these, these kind of costs are factored in. Why have we not done this before? <laughs> or rather, why did we stop? <laughs> yeah, that, that's, that's a very interesting question. Uh, for that, uh, uh, one, one of the things that I've mentioned is the Cold War mindset, yes. which, which, which still persists in this part of the world. Uh, and the other is uh, that uh, uh, we have to go back to, to history a little bit. Uh, like in 18, uh, 15, 1849, when Punjab was uh, taken by the East India Company, uh, the East India Company stopped uh, as, as the administrator in this part of the world, and the, the Indian subcontinent came under British crown. Mm. So that was the time when uh, they were thinking of developing river navigation. The first canal was uh, built for irrigation purposes, uh, I would say so-called irrigation purposes. Uh, it was basically the remodeling of uh, uh, Shah Nehr, 
which was uh, uh, a canal which was built by uh, Emperor Shah Jahan. Mm -hmm. uh, it started from Madhupur and brought water to the city of Lahore, where there are very famous Shalamar gardens and stuff. So the water would be coming from there. Uh, so what British did was uh, they put a barrage and they remodeled this canal for irrigation purposes. Uh, this was the model they were already they, they already had in the Ganga River Basin, where the canals were built and the river water was distributed among the farmers. So they immediately, immediately built that, remodeled that canal, and called the Sikh army, which was disbanded in uh, 1849, because they, they were fearing that if this army regroups, mm -hmm. they are trained soldiers, they can create trouble for us. So they invited six soldiers to come and dig the canals and get the land in return. So they turned that army into farmers, and this model was very successful. Uh, it also brought revenue in terms of uh, irrigation produce. And when this canal was being designed, uh, the, it, it ended at a place which is in Pakistan now, uh, Changamanga. It, it ends here today. But its original design was that it will go all the way to the city of Multan. And the last 250 kilometers from Changamanga to Multan were not supposed to be irrigation canal, but a navigation canal. Oh. So they already had this thing in mind that they would use this canal for navigation. And uh, this river Ravi, river Satluj, they were already being used for navigation. Uh, then this place, Mittenkot, where all the rivers joined together and Indus becomes one single artery. That town was planned, uh, was being planned as uh, uh, the uh, hub of trade for uh, Central Asia and South Asia by the British. So those were the designs. Uh, uh, the technical difficulty at that point in time was that Indus Delta, mm. the last part of the Indus, was so marshy and so much shifting that without doing any major engineering works, they could not connect uh, the main river uh, to the open sea. So what they were doing, uh, the, the port of Karachi was used, and then there was a creek, hmm. again, creek of Indus River, Gizri Creek. Small boats would carry uh, goods uh, to the main river uh, at a place called Jirk, which is close to Hyderabad Koti, where I'm talking hmm. about. And, and on Jirk, they developed one of the most advanced uh, inland port. And from there, this cargo would be from small boats to the big boats, and those big boats will sail all the way to Multan and even to Lahore. And, uh, you know. So, so that, that was the kind of things which were going on. But then came uh, Afghan wars. First Afghan war took place in, uh, in I think 1942, uh, in which uh, the British were defeated. And, uh, uh, but after that defeat, the British did not realize that they cannot conquer Afghanistan. They just thought that, okay, this is a blip. Uh, they admonished the person who actually advised them to go to Afghanistan at that time. Uh, his name was uh, Alexander Burns. Uh, he was admonished in, admonished in the parliament that he misjudged something. Uh, by the way, Alexander Burns was also killed during uh, that first Afghan war. Uh, and then in 1870s, there was the Second Afghan War, uh, in which, again, the British were first defeated, and then they uh, regrouped and they, they conquered Afghanistan, they put a king over there, and then they decided, that, okay, we are not going to go to yeah. Afghanistan, and because we are not going to go to Afghanistan, we are not going to control the navigation in the uh, Indus River, which is leading into Afghanistan, and then there was this fear that if we build this infrastructure and Russians gain control mm. in Afghanistan, then they would reach the warm waters. So then they said, okay, this irrigation system which they built in Madhupur was very successful actually soon after that system because it was not just uh, uh, successful in controlling the Sikh army, disbanded Sikh army, it also was generating revenue. And then there was a war in 1857 mm. in which Raja of Patiala, mm. uh, he sided with the British. And in 1858, he asked the British that they should build a similar system uh, in, in, in Sirhind, which is now in uh, Indian Punjab, 
so he asked them that you give us the expertise of building it, I will finance it and build a similar system in my state as well. So Sir Hind Canal was built. Interesting. And, 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 you know, uh, and then, you know, after 1878, after this, the, the, the conclusion of Second Afghan War, there was a big thrive in uh, building more canals. Irrigation canals. Irrigation canals. And, worked, and, yeah. so, so then all the water, it started flowing into the yeah. irrigation canals. The structures were being built. Rivers were being blocked. And, and we forgot about navigation. I know. Like 170 years, this is. Yes, it's, it's, it's a long history. Yeah. We have taken, I, I, I normally say that we have taken 150 years to destroy the navigational potential of Indus River. Maybe it will take us at least 50 years to revive it. And we have to start from somewhere, from where the countdown starts mm -hmm. to the In next phases. 50 years. Yes. yes. Yeah, that makes sense. Are there any negatives to using inland waterways for trade and uh, the movement of cargo? The negative part is only which concerned now is, uh, uh, um, uh, is this um, security and security. People are little worried when these things will be opened up, how can we secure our borders? What can be done to uh, bring illegal cargo? What can be done to prevent people coming into their countries? So those are the things which are more bothered by various people. You know, they are using boats from various countries to come into their countries. So these are the things. So otherwise, and also they feel that uh, maybe our um, uh, social fabric will become liquidated, things like that. But Europe has gone over it. So uh, maybe now a little bit of right wings are coming and they are talking about, but it is not basically Europe. Europe, they are looking at the people from other countries who are coming. But for India, uh, uh, I would suggest that they will be more worried about if people from Pakistan or Bangladesh coming in. Bangladesh. Uh, the water is being not used properly for harvesting and other things. Otherwise, I don't think so. There should be a problem. So the, 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 the final thing which I say that uh, people must realize that inland waterways has always played a vital role throughout the history. And this is facilitating the trade and transportation and also economic development. So ancient civilization always recognized this. You know, look at rivers like Nile, or Tigris, or Euphrates, and Indus, you know, they have been serving for many, many years. And even during the Industrial Revolution, the canals, the Erie Canal in, uh, in the United States, this transformed the coal trade system. Mississippi, I already talked, which I can see, which is happening now. Then construction of Panama Canal, recognized the global trade between, shortcut between Atlantic and Pacific. So these ancient st stories highlight how the waterways was significant lifeline for civilization and providing them with water, agriculture, and, and also enabling trade and transportation. Particularly given the, the governance mechanisms which we have here, particularly given the bureaucratic hurdles which we have here, particularly given the political culture which we have here. So I think these are, um, you know, some red flags out there and, um, you know, how it would really impact uh, the fish or, or the aquaculture and, you know, the, the river pollution. I mean, we can talk about it, but then we talk about water quality and it's so intensely missing in the water, uh, the, the negotiations, you know, which we've had bilaterally. So I think, yes, these are the issues which are rights you know, they're staring us uh, on our face, and but we need to take cognizance of them when we're talking about navigation. When you're talking about regional cooperation, which means that you're pooling up your sovereignty, right? Um, you're talking about regional integration, we're talking about a high level of trust. And if you really go by what's well, movements being made, I wouldn't say that we are in the same um, space where we were in the 1970s and the 1980s. Um, India has been changing, so the bright aspect is that, you know, uh, India has been talking about uh, its first neighborhood policy and it does really see you know the other countries uh, active participant where I think uh, when we're talking about the Asian relations conference the other countries like Bhutan Nepal were passive bystanders they were thinking that perhaps you know this is a kind of civilizational chauvinism which is being employed by China and India where are we and they were too guarded about their sovereignty but I think now the times have changed and uh, especially uh, with both Bhutan and and um, 
uh, Nepal, um, you know, they also see the future in terms of getting connected to Southeast Asia. Right. So we are no longer, and this I think is a very important point, we are no longer into a very land-centric understanding of South Asia, but we're getting more into a maritime-centric understanding of South Asia. And I think there is where, you know, this discourse mm-hmm. really resonates with a kind of policy debates, discussions which are happening, you know, moving towards a maritime South Asia. Are you hopeful? Um, <laughs> well, um, at the level of, I do see potential in this idea because, um, you know, when you are uh, really talking about um, navigation, when you're really talking about uh, inland, you know, navig- that means that you also maintain the rivers, but it needs proper planning. So if the economic vision is so robust, you know, there is economics there. It's in the interest of the states. And um, and, and uh, there is some piecemeal cooperation, which is, by the way, happening between India, Nepal, India, Bangladesh. So there is an interest in terms of what countries really want from it. Mm-hmm. So yes, I mean, uh, you know, when you really look at the main drivers here, the states are interested. Mm-hmm. But I think it's really the onus of the civil society now to really get this... Uh, more critical understanding of water mm-hmm. into a policy discourse, which is still, I would say, very a, a bit narrow. So That's I think right. there is where the non-state actors, uh, donor agencies, or uh, non-governmental organizations, or hybrid organizations, they come in and they make a difference. So yes, I am. <laughs> yes, you are. Yeah, in terms of at least the discourse which is getting created and the kind of ecological awareness that we have today, it's very, very different from where we were, I would say, in the 90s or 2000s. And that makes you hopeful? I mean, it makes, yeah, because there's a discourse there. Right. It's another matter of fact that those issues won't come into the table, but there is some noise. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, and, and even I would say the water sector in India. So see, you know, it's, it's just a change in your lens and your gaze. When you look at transboundary water cooperation, you get locked um, into certain positions. And uh, uh, that, in a way, doesn't really have a very productive sort of an engagement. But when you actually look at the national water policies and the kind of engagement that is happening in the water sector, I think that's, um, that, that's a happening sector right now. Can you give me an example? So you look at the smart cities concept, which is happening. Mm-hmm. You know, you look at um, the Australian Water P- Partnership, and you look at the kind of water actors which are here, Australia, or uh, you know, in terms of the kind of diplomacy which India is applying, you know, with a bit developed country like Israel or maybe the European Union. Um, you know, a lot many ideas are really focusing on the river. You know, so the uh, Swachh Bharat Abhiyan, for instance, or you know, we're talking about the cleaning of the Ganges. You know, this partnership which was between India and the European Union. So I think you know, with these actors and with the kind of discourses which are picking up, of course, it's a Herculean task. I'm not saying that it's easy, but at least you know, there is a discourse which is out there mm-hmm. on the table, and uh, possibly there is some space for the influence of, uh, again, the non-state actors and the non-governmental actors to contribute in. I hope so. You mentioned India-Bangladesh opening up some sort of... uh, Can you just elaborate on that? What is happening that you've noticed? Uh, So I think it was maybe in the 2018. I don't uh, have the numbers. uh, I can check that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, But I think, uh, you know, uh, there is uh, some cooperation which happened from the Chittorgarh port you know, to uh, 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 to Agartala, because if you look at the distance, if suppose you know India wants to move from uh, you know the mainland, I would say you know to use that word in quotes, to northeast takes a much longer route. But then if you actually go via Bangladesh and through ports of Bangladesh, that you know the distance really sort of reduces. So um, uh, particularly, I think there are two rivers which uh, right now are open for navigation. There is some thinking there. The first is of course the Brahmaputra, and the second is River Barak, the Barak River. And uh, here, uh, particularly the Chittorgarh port and the Mongla port are really being developed. So, yeah, this is the... Interesting. I didn't know that. Last year, we saw that when the Ukraine crisis started, there was a massive disruption of supply chains, energy crises, and it was the rivers that allowed transportation of essential goods to make way into places that just had no access otherwise. Actually, COVID has taught us many lessons, you know. And uh, we realized that there are certain things should have been looked into. You know, if you are going to produce goods in China, how will you bring them to Europe or to America or India? And 
that requires a good and proper transportation. And even if these goods are being brought to say Rotterdam or to Maine Hamburg, then how will you take them inside? Because there was a big problem regarding uh, truckers. They could not find people running their trucks. So you need to have a proper transportation system to keep this lifeline working. And maybe not put all your eggs in one basket, but actually distribute it so that it's using many different channels, literally. I, yes, I fully agree into that. Um, just one last, uh, if you have any thoughts on using waterways for transporting goods, services, do you think it would be more cost-effective and environmentally more sustainable? It would be definitely cost-effective, but the thing is the kind of resources that you're getting in. You know, um, the resources which do not really have the kind of environmental costs that will have on the river. So can you get sort of, you know, resources or infrastructure, you know, to meet these requirements, which definitely are going to be expensive, you know, because you know where the market lies, right? So there is a political economy to this whole issue, which I think is very important. Um, but I guess uh, when it really comes to the knowledge sector, uh, when it really comes uh, to, you know, I would say even shipbuilding, I mean, that kind of innovation is there, you know, in uh, in, in South Asia. And I think, uh, yes, you know, perhaps uh, that should be, I mean, the government is already subsidizing it, but I think um, it, it holds some promise for local entrepreneurship. And uh, maybe these are the ways in which one could exercise some ingenuity. And uh, this the, so this could be, again, a potential opportunity because we know that, you know, we have have the demographic uh, dividend, you know, on our side. They're young minds, bright people with the youth today with a lot of energy, a new generation altogether. So I think it's also about like creating discourses and getting the youth really involved. I'm sure that there are solutions, you know, which will come in. So there is a brighter side to India. Like I, I don't really paint it black or white, but I think, you know, um, there you know, there are possibilities and uh, it's really about the discourse really catching up and creating that difference and then you know, that becomes uh, a good case uh, for people to look at and people to talk about. Well, you make me feel hopeful, so <laughs> thank you. <laughs> How optimistic are you or what are your hopes for an international river tradeway? Okay, uh, uh, the good thing about Indus Basin is that it is a transboundary basin. Some people say it's a problem, but in terms of river navigation, it's, it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity for more trade. Because uh, our rivers, uh, Indus Basin rivers, they, from the from Arabian Sea, they link to India, northern India, which is landlocked. It links to Afghanistan, which is landlocked. And uh, if we offer this route for our neighbors to use, they will benefit from it. And, uh, you know, Today, in, in the session, they were talking about trust deficit. You know, whenever a financial transaction takes place between two parties, it is based on trust. I give you money, you give me something, there's a trust. If there is no trust, there's no trade. So you start building trust through trade. Because if they are trading with you, there's trust already. You start with the, with the private businesses. Now, there is huge trust deficit, for example, between the, the official levels of Afghanistan and Pakistan. Huge trust deficit. But down there, there are businesses which are doing daily business, like we are exporting so many uh, food items to Afghanistan. And in turn, they are selling us things which they receive through uh, international trade in their country. And, and they come to Pakistan, like there are so many uh, like uh, electronic items and stuff which are, which are shipped from Pakistan into Afghanistan in sealed containers, part of the uh, Afghan transit trade. They use the port of Karachi and they receive those goods in Afghanistan and they sell it to us. I, I mean, th that, that's the kind of things which are going on. And, and because there are uh, individual parties, private parties, which are actually doing that trade. So there's a lot of lot of trust between those parties. So we can take advantage of that trust. And then if we do it officially, uh, the city of Jalalabad, which is right next to the border of Pakistan, and it is on the 
Kabul River, which is a tributary of Indus. Uh, and this tributary had been used as a trade corridor when the British were here. Actually, uh, in 1920, I think 1919, uh, a treaty was signed between Afghanistan and the, and the British Crown in which this Kabul River was uh, agreed upon to be used for trade. So that trade corridor still exists, Jalalabad still exists, Kabul River still exists. So Kabul River can become actually a roundabout economy uh, for Central Asia. Yeah. Imagine the, the, the city of Jalalabad uh, taking the role of Rotterdam uh, for Europe. You know, because all that, now Rotterdam is the biggest port. Why Rotterdam is the biggest port for, for Europe? Because it is connected to Rhine, and Rhine is then connected to the rest of the Europe mm -hmm. through inland waterways. So if Jalalabad becomes the port for the Central Asian states, uh, this would be the closest port to the Central Asian right. states. And Central Asian states are rich economies, at least some of them. Yeah. And, and if you are serving a rich economy, you are making a lot of money. So Jalalabad can, can become the Rotterdam of uh, Central Asia. For me, I'm a person who uh, just believes that, you know, you just take care of what you are doing, mm -hmm. you know, reduce your own carbon mm -hmm. footprint, and perhaps, uh, you know, that would be the way to change. I think that's important. I mean, as simple as, I mean, you talk about GHGs, and, you know, much of the GHGs is also coming from the domestic sector. So, uh, well, collective mobilized, people are talking about it, but then we can just go on and on, you know, I mean, <laughs> but I think just take responsibility individually if you want mm -hmm. to make this place a better world. Yeah. All right. And, you know, 90% of the problems are because the population is too poor. They, you can easily, you know, buy them for doing nasty things in the world. You can give them weapons and ask them to do a few, you know, burst of fire and get the money. You know, so that's all because of poverty. So if the poverty is not there, the region becomes, what is Middle East? I mean, uh, there's peace in the Middle East where there's money. Yeah. Where there's no money in the Middle East, there's no peace. So it's basically, it, it boils down to economy. You, 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 you improve the economy of the people and they become peaceful. Yeah, and this is a way to do it. In a way this is a way to do it. It's and, been and done, it's palatable, they're probably And then, then it. it's, it's, it's again an opportunity between India and Pakistan. If we start collaborating on, on, on these things, now uh, we get environmental benefits if water flows into the rivers and India gets trade if water flows into these rivers. And then we did not touch China, actually. China is, uh, the, the ships are in Shanghai and uh, these days in big ports. And all the movement is taking place in, in and around various rivers. They, they actually knew that to do and grow the country very fast, they must have a good transport system. So not only they paid attention to their roads, their rivers are all, even though rivers are very muddy, but still they have been able to use them and so many good ports have been located in and around on these ports. Lots of food for thought here. It's, yes. It's exciting. Actually, looking at all these passengers, one, one really has to be sick uh, in order not to be optimistic. <laughs> well said. <laughs> Thank you so much. This was um, very, very interesting and eye-opening for me, and I'm sure our listeners will also appreciate it. I hope it does. Thank you. Thank you so much. Hello. This is Connecting the Dots, a podcast series by the Friedrich Naumann Foundation. I'm Chavi Sachdev, the host of the podcast. 